listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. We are kicking off this new series this morning. As you can see, Discover Your Mission, and I'm really looking forward to it. This is a series that um, really has been crafted to help you personally uh, discover your mission, to like lean in and, uh, and learn about uh, the kind of purpose and direction that you can really give your life to. And, and, and not only give your life to it, but like you get so immersed in it and you so grab a hold of it that you couldn't imagine your life not being about this. And if that is sort of like tugging at your heart a little bit, getting your attention, if you're, if you're in a spot where you feel like your, your life is a little bit aimless, um, been there many times in my life and you feel like you need direction or if you feel like, man, I've been at this for a while, but I need a fresh, like, I need to grab a hold of a fresh bite of purpose, and I need to know what my life is being lived for, then I would just really challenge you. Make sure you're here for the next four weeks. We're gonna, this is going to be five weeks long. Make sure you're here for the next four weeks. Just commit. I mean, when you think about it, like you could commit four weeks to potentially discover something that could change the trajectory of your life. The, to give you the kind of purpose and direction that you've been searching for, like four Sundays is, a, is so, so worth it. And so I just want to encourage you to go for it, hang in there with us. And uh, this one is a good one. And I was a wee bit long for service. So hang on. Are you ready? Let's jump in. Uh, this that uh, we're going to jump in and talk about today is an ancient idea that uh, we're going to unpack a little bit, and by the end of the day, we're going to have a lot better understanding of this particular word and idea. And this idea is redeem, all right? Redeem. And so we're going to look at this. Redeem is a word that has biblical context for sure. And I want to look at a couple of those examples right up front. Exodus 6 6. Uh, it says that Egypt, uh, he brings him out of Egypt. He says, I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. Uh, or then next in um, Isaiah, we've got now this is what the Lord says. He who created Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. And so he says these things. And then again, this is God saying to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. I'm still getting used to reading up here off of these things. And it's like, I have to turn my head. It's so big. It's, and I don't need reading glasses, which is cool. So there's that. Um, so this idea of redeem has been around for a long time. And all three of these ideas that we just looked at, all three of those passages about God talking about redeeming and redemption happened long before the time of Jesus. So what is God up to? What does he have in mind when he's talking about redeem? And so what I want you to know is that although redeem has biblical context, redeem is not a biblical idea in its origin. It actually comes from uh, somewhere else. It comes from patriarchal society. And so as we get into this a little bit today, you're going to get an under-the-radar side lesson in patriarchal systems, patriarchal society. The world that we're living in right now is trying to paint the word patriarch 
or the idea of a patriarchal system with a strong male leadership as terrible, evil, bad, oppressive, you know, nothing good. And in God's design, and when it was practiced properly, you're going to get an idea of what it was, what it could look like when done right. Not that it hasn't done, been done wrong over the years. But so, so you're going to get a little side lesson in really seeing patriarchy uh, played out the right way as we learn about redeem. Okay. So in order to help us talk about redeem, we need to kind of go back in time a little bit. We need to look at this uh, ancient idea in the way uh, where it originated, which is in this like patriarchal family system. So uh, there's a picture up here that is uh, uh, in Israel. These are just some ancient ruins. For most of us in the room, it's like, yep, that's some dirt and rocks and stuff. It's not that spectacular. But one of the things you're looking at is really the foundations and footings and um, what's left of kind of a big family compound, a, a family housing environment where different buildings would have been built up to get out of the shade, to get out of the weather. There would have been different things to keep animal, to store grain. And, and so I want us to just sort of imagine those things being, you know, kind of resurrected there. If you can put in your mind's eye this big sort of family spread of all these different people living in this pretty hot, arid place. And I want to just kind of give us an example so that we can have a context for this word redeem. And in this example, we're going to say that we all live here and I'm the patriarch. And so in this example, as me being the patriarch, most of you are my children. This is really weird. I didn't really think that through until I said it first service, and then I realized how weird it was, but just go with it, right? So most of you are my children, and many of you have been married off, and so now you have wives, and your families have joined the family household, and and then our extended family is amongst us here on the spread. And also, in addition to that, um, my younger brothers and some of their family are here on the spread. Now, So you've got this great big family of extended family and relatives and people that have been married in, sort of living on this big family spread. And in this system, in this patriarchal system, the way it works is that everything that we own, everything that we collectively as a family here on the spread, all the money we make, everything we earn, all of the stuff, it all comes in and comes to me. Now, Here's the, here's the catch. It comes with great responsibility because my job as the patriarch, my job is to make sure that all of your needs are met. That you have enough food, that you have enough clothing, that you have a roof over your head, that your family and you are as comfortable as I'm able to provide with the means that I have. I don't know if you guys have caught wind of this yet in your life experience. Having someone else take care of your needs, kind of a good thing. I don't know. I really like it. (laughs) Maybe I'm the only one. You guys like to do everything for yourself? Seriously? Um, That's weird. Um, Having your needs met is good. And so, so that's what this deal is. Now, in this situation, in our example, if one of you gets marginalized, you're outside the household for some reason, you, uh, maybe you get off, you're off doing a, uh, you know, traveling somewhere and you're attacked by an enemy or you're injured and out there somewhere hurt. My job as the patriarch is to do anything and everything I can to 
go out and rescue you, to redeem you, to bring you back to the patriarchal household, to the safety and protection of this patriarchal compound, right? The family spread. Even if you, by some way uh, or some uh, you know, type of misfortune, you lose some of your family lands or you have a bad business deal or it's a terrible year and crops don't go well and, and you lose land that had belonged to your family, my job still is, a, even if it comes at great expense, to go out to buy your land back and restore you to the patriarchal household. Now that patriarchal household is called the father's house. It's called the Father's house. In Hebrew, it's called Betav. And so the job of the patriarch is to keep the Father's house intact, to hold it all together. If you're a father in the room, you probably can relate to that idea a little bit. So that's what this idea of redeem is all about, restoring to the household bringing people back in to the father's house. To redeem means you look for people that have gone outside the household for whatever reason, and you do everything you can to bring them back into the father's house. That's the concept of redeem. Now, check this out. If, if God was thinking about this idea of redeem when he said all of these different things, one of the things we can sort of discern is that is that if God was speaking this way about Israel, that they were going to be redeemed, that he would be in the uh, redeeming them, that, that one day he would redeem them, he was in the process of redeeming them, and then we can sort of get this idea that he actually thought Israel was outside the Father's house. In order for God to say that he needed to redeem them, it's because he was going to go to great lengths to go to wherever they were to bring them back into the protection of the Father's house, to redeem them. It's the same thing today. God is in the business of redeeming us. Throughout the Psalms, we see it. He can redeem you from your enemies in Psalm 135. He can redeem you from the pit in Psalm 103. He can redeem you from trouble in Psalm 107. God rescues his lost children and he returns them to the father's house. That's the idea of redeem. Now, when the patriarch dies, guess what? Most of the resources go to the oldest son. Okay, so now I want you to think about this for a second in the world that we live in. Next Christmas, pick your oldest give them most of the presents and then give all the rest of the kids like a matchbox or, you know, like one little thing and see how excited it, like it doesn't go over well in our culture. We like fair, even just distribution. But in this ancient culture, when the oldest son actually got most of the resources if the patriarch died and they passed on to the oldest son, that whole compound, that whole family, the everybody that it would be affected by it, celebrated. They were excited. They were like, woohoo, the oldest son, like, yeah, Steve, Steve got it all. I don't know a lot of Steve, so if there's a Steve in here, it's your lucky day. 
right? You, you, you got it all. You know why they were excited? They were excited because now he has to make sure that I'm fed. He has to make sure that I'm clothed. He has to make sure that I have a roof over my head, that I have a place to live, that I'm taken care of, that my needs are met like, woo-wee, it's good to have a big brother. This is what God had in mind. Now check this out. Biblically, God is the Father. God is the Father. All of humanity is God's family. We're all his community, and God is in the business of seeking and finding those who are lost, who are marginalized, who are on the outside of the Father's house, the safety and protection of the Father's house, and inviting them back in. And one of the ways that God did that is to give his firstborn all of the resources to, be, uh, to play a part in reaching the lost. Right now, do you remember who God's firstborn is? It's a little bit of a trick question. Because the good Sunday school answer is always Jesus. Like, when in doubt, for sure. Safe bet, Jesus, except today. Scripture says in Exodus 4.22, check this out. It says that, say, say this to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. Israel is my firstborn son. So God comes to Israel, this chosen people, and he says to them, he's going to treat them as his firstborn son. He, he's going to give them this abundance of resources. Why? Why do they get it? So that they can play a part in, in reaching the lost and inviting them back into the protection of the Father's house. It's, it's like God chooses them not because he's playing favorites. It's not just like God just liked Israel more than he liked, you know, I don't know, Germans or Americans or whatever. You know, like it, he picked Israel. You'll see in other places in scripture that because they were the smallest among the nations, very much in line with this idea of Gideon taking on this great army with only 300 men. Like there's something to be said about like God's going to bless them, provide for them, but he's going to do it in such a way that there's no doubt anybody could ever wonder that it was by God's power and God's provision through these few people that the world could be reached and invited back into the father's house that's what god has in mind so god redeems them he invites them to essentially become partners in redeeming the world inviting them back now here's the thing about israel sometimes they did a really good job and they represented God well, and they invited people back into the Father's house, and they used those resources to do that. Other times, they hoarded their resources, and they didn't use those uh, resources to help people outside the Father's house. And still, other times, they actually actively opposed people that God had always intended on being invited back in. God's deepest desires of his heart was what, that those people would find safety and protection in the Father's house, and at times Israel actively blocked them from coming in. And so eventually, over time, God says, I'm going to have a second firstborn, my only begotten son, 
In a passage we're probably most quite familiar with, John 3, 16 and 17, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him, right? Jesus came with all of the resources of his heavenly father for what? to save the world, to seek and save, to look for those who are lost that are outside the protection of the family, the father's house. And so Jesus lived and he died to pay off this enormous debt, our sin, so that, so that we would have a way to come back to the father's house. And then Jesus told his followers at one point, that he was actually going to go and prepare a place for them. And so you see in John 14, where he tells them, don't get worried. Everything's going to be okay. I'm leaving. And they get all you know, worried about where are you going to go. And he says, you just trust me. I'm going someplace. And where I'm going, I'm going to prepare a house for you. I wouldn't tell you if there wasn't enough room. I, he's like, I don't lie. Right? He's like, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And then when it's ready, I'm going to come and get you. And it's essentially like Jesus is passing on the responsibility. He's like, I'm going to go and do this. And while I'm gone, you get to represent the bigger brother. You get the resources. You get to be a part of inviting people back into the Father's house. One of the things I want to make sure you understand as we talk about redeem, because in our culture, um, in church, it's easy to get redeem and saved or redemption and salvation and sort of think of those as synonymous, exclusive kind of words that belong to each other. Redemption certainly speaks about and includes redem- uh, uh, salvation, but it's so much more than that. Yes, there is salvation. Yes, your debt is paid and your, uh, your slate is wiped clean and, and it's, that is the beginning of the process. But, but redeem, this idea that God has in mind, is much bigger than one day you'll go to heaven. It's today you can come back into the protection of the Father's house, come back into the community to belong, to fit, to be here. Let's look at a few different examples. Uh, Abraham and Lot is a good example. Abraham and Lot, Lot's his nephew. In Genesis chapter 14, there's all this fighting going on. It looks like a Braveheart scene or something when you read Genesis 14. There's a bunch of kings. They're all mad at each other. They all want to fight. That's the gist of it. It's much more precise than that, but they're all fighting, right? And these kings are fighting against these kings, and in the mix of all this fighting and battling going on, Lot gets scooped up, and he becomes kidnapped. Abraham, uh, then Abram, finds out that Lot has been kidnapped. Well, Abram goes to great lengths to round up some fighting men and, and risk it all, like literally risk his life and risk some of his most valuable assets, his most trained fighting men, to go and rescue his nephew Lot. And he could say, why? Why would he do that? Well, maybe he loved his nephew a lot. I don't know. You could try and learn what you can from the scriptures, but what we can know for certain, it's because he was family. It's because he was the patriarch. He's obligated to go and redeem. He's obligated. He has a responsibility to spare no expense, to, to, to take whatever risks are needed. And so he does that. There, there's other examples throughout Scripture. Uh, Ruth and Naomi were 
some that we taught about not too long ago. Ruth and Naomi, um, Naomi's married to a man, has two sons, there's a famine, they go to a far off land in Moab. When they get there, her husband dies. The sons marry off to Ruth and Orpah, two Moabite women. Not long later, the sons die, and Naomi has found herself in a spot where, where she has no husband and no oldest son. And, and you have to understand that in a patriarchal society, the problem with this is now her connection to the father's house, her connection to provision and protection, and I'll make sure you're fed, and I'll make sure you're clothed, and I'll make sure you have a roof over your head, I'll make sure your needs are met, all that's gone. And so she has nothing. She's a widow. She's on the outside. She has no provision or protection. She goes home not to return to her land. It's long since gone and sold and has nothing. And in that story, we see that there's a redeemer. God raised up a man named Boaz, and Boaz hears about their plight at great expense to him, buys Naomi's land back and restores it to her and restores her into the protection of the family, of the the father's house. And it wasn't for his gain, like that land would go as an inheritance to the son that he had with Ruth. And so you get this idea about redeem is tangible and real in our now life. Not just when we one day enter heaven. There's another story that's a great example that's really hard. There's a story about a a holy man named Hosea. And Hosea lived in what scholars say, by our standards, is probably a pretty small town, 250, 300 people-ish. And Hosea, God goes to him and says, "Um, I want you to go into town to the house of prostitution and you can just sort of imagine Hosea going, mm-hmm, to walk around it and pray, right? No, that's not what I had in mind. I want you to go there and pick one, mm-hmm, and marry her. Oh. And so he does. He goes, and he comes home with Gomer, who is a lady that probably everybody knew, many people that he knew, knew her way too well uncomfortable. In time, he perseveres. They begin a family, and she has three kids. Together, they have three children, and it seems like she's really experiencing redeem. She's really experiencing restored, like brought back into the safety and connection of a family, of of a patriarch-type figure that would love her and care for her. It seems like that, but then somewhere in the story, it takes a twist, and it says that she goes back to the street And I think a lot of times as people have heard this story or learned about this story or read it on your own, it's easy to think like she went back because she liked her old life better. And I think when we experience real life people that we know who had a past that was a mess and and they get over here in this area where things are starting to go better for them, and then we see them return to their past life, we can easily judge from the outside and say, it's because they liked, ooh, I almost biffed it. Um, (laughs) It's bound to happen eventually. We can do that and say it's because they liked their old life better, but I want you to wrestle with something. 
I want you to wrestle with something. I think actually there's probably more often than not something else going on because I don't know about you, but when, when you've lived a life and you've made mistakes and you've done things you regret and you've said things that you wish you wouldn't have said, and, and if, particularly for some that have gone way into some messy stuff, and then you get into a new environment, an environment where you're loved, an environment where there's grace, an environment where people aren't seeing you as your mistakes, but they're actually for the first time seeing you as a person that God loves, as a child that God cares about, and they're telling you what God thinks about you and who God says you are. And it's like, it, it, it's like you're hearing it, but it's not resonating. It's not sinking in because it doesn't line up with who you think you are. And I think a lot of people like Gomer and so many other people that come out of messy stuff and get an ex- get a taste of redeem, they go back to the messy stuff, not because it's what they wanted, not because it's what they liked better. It's because they don't know how to comprehend this. They don't know how to like, they don't know how to not be this old them. And so God does something amazing. And it's just such an awesome picture of what we need to do and how we need to behave for those people that we're walking through things with. As God says to Hosea, he says, hey, here the time has come. She's back on the street, but she's hit the bottom of the barrel. She's up on the auction block for sale. And you know what I want you to do? You need to go to town and buy her back. And Hosea is willing to go to town at whatever expense, however much he has to bid, in front of his neighbors who already don't think a lot of him because of what he did in the first place. Like, that's the lady you want as the mother of your children. Hmm, interesting. Looking down their noses, and here he is again, and she wouldn't even stay with him. Whatever the scuttle is, whatever the gossip is, he was willing to do what God knew was right, what God called him to do to buy her back. And so he does. That's the thing about redeem is it, it's going to take humility. It's going to take sacrifice. It's going to be uncomfortable. And that's what God is up to. In our town right here, that's what God is up to right now. He is in the redeeming business on all of our hills. We've got College Hill, Military Hill, Pioneer Hill, Sunnyside Hill. Did I forget any hills? First service, I forgot the hill I lived on. Um, But this place that we live, we could sit here and as Christians either say it ourselves, think it ourselves, or be around people that say it. It's like people out there, right in our own neighborhoods, we can think about them and say they're pagans. We can say they're sinners. We can say they're unbelievers. We can say that they're apathetic. They just don't care. They're not interested. But you guys, you got to understand, God looks at those very same people and what he sees are children who are lost. people who are outside of the father's house, kids who are in trouble. Like he literally is looking at people in our neighborhood saying they're living a life that's going to lead to destruction. Please, will somebody bring them back into the protection of the father's house? And Jesus is our most great example. Right? He's willing to die willing to be shamed in front of his whole community 
to do whatever it takes to get them back. That's what God is up to. So this last story real quick I want to look at, and we're going to zoom through it so that we can finish up quick, is Abraham. And Abraham is, uh, gosh, we're going to zoom. Abraham is sitting in his tent in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day. He sees these three strangers. This is a passage from Genesis that many are familiar with. He sees these three strangers come up to him and As they come up to him, Abraham does something that old men don't do in the culture. He picks up his robe and he runs to them. Now, most of us in here are like, whoop-de-doo, an old guy ran, right? Like, it doesn't mean anything in our culture. But in that culture, you can ask anybody, old men don't run. You don't do that. It's It's disgraceful. It's embarrassing. It's dishonorable. Old men don't run. On top of that, right before this story... The thing that you learn that happens when you read the chapter before is that Abraham had actually just been circumcised, which explains why he was laying low in the tent, right? So he's willing to embarrass himself, shame himself, and be in pain. It wasn't really probably fun to run there. He goes out to these three strangers, and it says that when he gets out to them, he, he bows down at their feet and he calls them, Lord, Lord. He says, how can I help you? How can, he's like, what can we do? Can I wash your feet? And he says, I'll wash your feet. Let me prepare a meal for you. These are three guys. He has no idea who they are. He probably has never seen them. will never see them again. And he calls to Sarah and he tells her uh, to go and prepare three seahs, three measures of the finest flour, like not the cheap stuff, not the junk that you give for guests, but like the very best flour you save for uh, like the most important situations. He says, go get these three seahs. And most of us are like, I don't know what a seah is. I don't know what a measure of flour is. First service, there were two people out of 200 that baked bread. How many people in here have ever baked bread? More. That's good. There's hope for the future. All right. So most people don't understand baking bread's not easy stuff. This what he this amount of flour really it amounts to like fifty to seventy-five pounds of flour. It is a lot of flour. If you were to try and make that much flour into dough and then bake bread, it would take forever. It is a huge deal. He has her make enough bread for these three guys to last them like three months. This is extravagant on top of the calf that they killed and butchered and the amount of time it would take to process and prepare and cook. And they roll out the red carpet for these three strangers. Why would he do something like that? Because Abraham understood what it was like to look for people that are outside the father's house. To to be willing to shame himself, to be willing to expend great expense so that anyone outside the father's house, like he didn't know where they were, where they came from, or how long they'd been gone, or what they needed. It was like, we're going to start with taking the very best care of you. And then let's go from there. Now, here's what's really cool as we kind of just wrap up that story, is in Matthew, it's full of Jesus's parables. Matthew chapter 13, there are a number of parables. But in, in Matthew chapter 13, at one point, there's a phrase that many of us are familiar with, and Jesus told another parable. And it rolls into another one. And I, I want us, I'm just going to paraphrase it, but I want you to say it with me. So, so we'll go like this. And Jesus told another parable. 
The kingdom of heaven is like a woman who took yeast and mixed it with 75 pounds of flour. Jesus came to bring the kingdom and what every Jew who heard this would have just immediately understood and what we need to hear today is that the kingdom of heaven is like Abraham and Sarah rolling out the red carpet for people who were on the outside. You want to invite people into the kingdom? Are you willing to embarrass yourself? Like, how do you treat the stranger? How do you treat the marginalized? What do you do to the homeless person, to the orphan, to the widow, to the kids that need help? Like, how do you treat people? How do you invite them in to the Father's house? These are the stories that help us start to wrap our brain around this idea of redeem. It's so much more than people receive salvation so that they can one day go to heaven. Yes. But people receive salvation so they can one day go to heaven and today come into the kingdom. And we get to invite them by whatever means necessary. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.